0: Burning Books with Eric Beck Rubin. April is the
1: greatest month. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. I'm Eric Beck Rubin. Today, we're going to look at a book that I was so excited about that I read it shortly after buying it, as opposed to buying it as though I needed to have it at that exact moment, then stowing it into a pile marked, if I live to 3000 years old. And I'm not going to lie, the fact that the book was a sharply designed box set of two paperbacks, that didn't hurt either. They say don't judge a book by its cover, because that's what we're going to do anyways. And so long as it's a good book, who the hell cares? The book we're looking at today is a true novel. The author is Mine Mizumura, and I can safely say, it's a good book. It was published in Japanese in 2002 and brought out in English in a 2013 translation by Juliet Carpenter. Konnichiwa, and let's start the show. For all I had just said before the lovely music, I came close to not buying this book. Simple reason. The author, Minei Mizumura, states that a true novel is meant to closely follow the plot of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Now, let me state that I can't altogether dismiss Wuthering Heights. Actually, it's more accurate to say I can't express an entirely informed opinion about Wuthering Heights, because although I did read it through, I was asleep while doing so. What I learned from reading a true novel, though, was that the plot of Wuthering Heights was not the reason for my dislike of that book. That's to say, the plot was fine. It was good. In fact, it was great. So let's recap the plot of that earlier novel. The Earnshaw family. Father, Mr. Earnshaw. Son, Hindley Earnshaw. And daughter, Catherine Earnshaw, live in a Yorkshire estate called Wuthering Heights, not named after the book. One day, the father brings home a rascal from Liverpool, an orphan from somewhere close to the docks, named Heathcliff. The older brother, Hindley, takes an immediate disliking to Heathcliff, perhaps sensing a rival, perhaps sensing a superior, definitely sensing a stain on the family name. The sister Catherine, though, that's another story. Catherine and Heathcliff form a fast bond, and as they grow older, close friendship turns into romantic love. The problem? Well, it's the old English problem. The eternal English problem. Class. Catherine's got it. Heathcliff doesn't. Then, on top of that, some misfortune occurs. While out with Heathcliff scoping the estate of a neighboring toff, the chinless Edgar Linton, Catherine is attacked by a guard dog. She's bitten. Then Heathcliff, trying to help her, is chased away by the estate's guards, and the chinless Edgar Linton immediately takes Catherine into his house to care for her. During her long convalescence, Catherine remains, ostensibly against her will, at Edgar's estate, but she learns to tolerate it and, more consequently, to tolerate the chinless Edgar. And as he sees her attitude towards him softening, Edgar does the only thing a character like himself can do, which is to propose. Catherine is torn. She goes back to Wuthering Heights and relays the news of the proposal to Nelly, her old housekeeper confessing that Heathcliff is the one she loves, but that she fears she will never marry him because of his lowly station. Heathcliff happens to be within earshot of the conversation, and is so upset by what he hears that he disappears without a trace. Catherine, after a prolonged period of engagement, in essence waiting for Heathcliff's return, marries the chinless Edgar Linton. Then, just as suddenly as Heathcliff disappeared, he reappears, and he is stalked. He's flashing his newfound dosh up and down the moors and quickly gets his nose back in the Earnshaw family business, coming to buy Wuthering Heights from his erstwhile nemesis Hindley, who, meanwhile, drinks himself into oblivion. Catherine is thrilled about Heathcliff's return, the chinless Edgar understandably less so. The two lovers, Heathcliff and Catherine, resume their trysts on the moors, but the triangle cannot hold. Catherine falls pregnant and dies while giving birth. Heathcliff, already a rash character, is driven off his ledge and turns his anger on everyone around him, staining the moors with his misery forevermore. Or at least, that's how it looks at that part of Bronte's story. A flying synopsis. And it sounds pretty good. It almost makes me want to go back to Bronte's original. But with the real threat that I slip into a coma by page five, I'm going to stay away. Stay away and instead delve into the latter-day version, a true novel. The beginning of Mizumura's A True Novel recalls the beginning of Jan Martel's Life of Pi, namely a recounting of the struggles of a writer. In both cases, these struggles are introduced as a kind of counterpoint, for the authors, both of whom seem at the end of their tether while recalling their miseries, have come upon a stroke of luck. In Mizumura's case, this happened while she was teaching a class on Japanese literature in Palo Alto, California, and trying at the same time to complete her third novel. That's when, one day, between classes, she is approached by a person who gifts her, as she puts it, a story. And not just any story, but a story, to use her words, just like a novel.
0: What is more, the story was meant for me alone. It concerned a man whom I knew, or rather whom my family knew, in New York at one time. This was no ordinary man. Leaving Japan with nothing, he arrived in the United States and made a fortune there, literally realizing the American dream. His life had taken on the status of legend among Japanese communities in New York, yet no one knew that he'd had another life back in Japan, one marked by the poverty-stricken period that followed World War II. The tale of that life would almost certainly have disappeared, lost in the stream of time, if a young Japanese man, who happened to hear it, had not then crossed the Pacific and hand-delivered it to me in Palo Alto, like a precious offering. Of course, the preciousness of his offering was something the young man never knew. As far as he could tell, he merely traveled on his own initiative, sought me out of his own accord, then went away when he told the story he wanted to tell. Yet I felt as if some invisible power had arranged to bring this messenger to me.
1: Mizumura's doubts about what she has regarded as her vocation to be a writer are allayed by what comes across as a stroke of divine intervention, the apparition of this amazing story. So, with the trepidation that comes with the new work, she begins this tale. Well, she begins, but not at the beginning, at least not to the author, who describes the extended first section of the novel as a prologue, a beginning before the beginning. In this section, a narrator, called Mine Mizumura, who recalls her first encounters with a man of mystery named Taro Azuma, who, it is clear, is the Heathcliff character of a true novel. The prologue takes place on Long Island, New York in the 1970s, when the Mizumura family were living in the United States. The father had a job working at the American branch of a Japanese corporation that made camera lenses. Mine introduces herself as the younger, more introverted sister of two, a girl who divided her life into compartments. There was a part of her that went to an English-speaking high school. There was a part of her that lived in the Japanese-speaking home. And there was a part of her that read novels, which took the rest of her away from the world around her. It was about that time, the beginning of high school, that Mine noticed the name Taro Azuma popping up regularly in family conversations. At first, Taro was described as a young Japanese driver of an affluent neighbor, a Mr. Atwood. Mine's father tells the family how he lent Taro some language tapes, and how, to the father's surprise, Taro had returned the tapes within days, having run through the lot of them. When it's discovered that Mr. Atwood was cheating on his wife, Taro, the driver, gets the boot, and Minet's father hires him at the lens-making shop. Like the English language, the specialist lens-making trade is easily picked up by Taro. It's clear this man has the Midas touch, first figuratively, then, as it turns out, literally. This penniless young man, who had traveled to North America as a stowaway on a freighter, and who had started his career as a limo driver, becomes, through graft and gall, tremendously wealthy. Almost vengefully wealthy. In addition to hearing about him, Minet has a few brief encounters with Taro, and it's plenty for him to leave his mark on her and on the reader. He is described as extremely good-looking, but also a person who lets little of his inner life show. Where his co-workers drink, he doesn't. When other men dance with their girls, he refuses. Minet treats Taro's refusals and abstentions as gaps, opportunities, for her to enter his world through her imagination. Where, as a chauffeur, did he sleep? What is the root of his abstinence from alcohol, as well as his seeming abstinence from life? What kinds of girls did he date? Mine offers herself answers that she has picked up from the books she's read. Fiction is her way of filling in the blanks, of telling the story of Taro Izuma. As such, the life of this mysterious young man was, to Mine, fiction from the start. It was always the material of a novel that, as the author writes in the prologue, seemed to be a lifetime in the making. In addition to the life as fiction motif of this novel, there are other clues in the prologue about the content of the upcoming story. One is a recurring concern with class, another with authenticity. What, this displaced young woman asks, makes for a real American or a real Japanese. And yet another concern is adultery and lewd behavior. The prologue's setting, Long Island, reappears later in the book, recalled as the home of the Great Gatsby, a character who remakes himself through wealth and whose story also nicely links the matters of class, authenticity, and extramarital activities. And while all this might sound overdetermined, the author's light touch allows her to lay this intricate pattern on top of the story with admirable ease. Tact is one of Mizumura's greatest assets as a writer. This is evident in one of the stranger transitions of the novel, when, at the end of the prologue, Mizumura puts aside the story of her life in Long Island, or at least the life of the character named Mine Mizumura in Long Island, to directly address the reader about the strange title of her book, a true novel, which, in Japanese, has particular connotations.
0: The term true novel once played a crucial role in the development of modern Japanese literature. The period when Japan opened its doors to the West, beginning in 1868, coincided with what might be called the golden era of the Western novel. It also coincided with a period when an evolutionary theory of civilization, one which included the idea that art evolves toward higher forms, prevailed with passionate conviction in the West and spread to the rest of the world. It was inevitable that Japanese novelists would also be moved by a desire to reproduce what they perceived to be the most highly evolved form of literature. For them, and perhaps for other non-Western writers, the type of novels written in 19th century Europe ones where the author sought to create an independent fictional world came to represent the ideal. Half a century later, and after numerous experiments, not all Japanese writers were so sure. Some still claimed that, difficult as it had proved in the past, Japanese novelists should continue to aim for what they staunchly believed was the ideal, a fictional world created by an impersonal author. Others thought that novelists should basically adhere to writing truthfully about themselves, because being so true to oneself, and ultimately, to life, is what ought to embody the highest aim in literature. Some went further and asserted that such writing was the very soul of Japanese literature, where the diary has been an esteemed literary genre for over a thousand years. The controversy led to the emergence of two terms for two different approaches to fiction, one normative and the other descriptive, the true novel and the eye novel."
1: Mizumura tells us that the controversy, in air quotes, about what makes appropriate subject matter for a novel has since dissipated within the wider literary community. Contending with writing a true story that had the elements of a novel, however, brought Mizumura back to it. She wanted to include herself in the story, but she was also resisting writing what she called an I novel.
0: What exactly is an I novel? In an I novel, readers expect the writer to figure in the work in one way or another. Whether the work is in fact based on the writer's life or is a contrivance, is ultimately irrelevant. The author-protagonist of an i-novel is perceived as an actual, specific individual, one whose face may be publicly known in other media. The work is necessarily assumed to be truthful about that individual's life."
1: The reader knows that, ultimately, Mizumura decided to insert herself into the work, not front and center, but more as a witness to the eminence of Taro Azuma, a Johnny Wheelwright character to Owen Meany. And it's fortunate for the reader that she made this decision, because the prologue contains what was, for me, the finest and most interesting writing in the book. It's also where we learn most about Taro Azuma's rise, precisely the part of the story that the reader does not get in Wuthering Heights, where one day Heathcliff is there, the next day he's not, and then ten years later he comes back again, filthy rich. After this point, though, it's more or less exit stage left for Mizumura and the United States as the story goes back in time to post-World War II Japan. When the story starts in earnest, after the 166-page prologue, it is relayed in third person from the perspective of the young man who, many pages before, approached Mizumura in Palo Alto with the story of Taro Azuma. The young man's name is Yuzuke, and, in his section of the novel, he explains how he got to meet Taro Azuma. It was the previous summer, and Yuzuke was at a friend's cottage in a village called Karuizawa in the mountainous Nagano region of Japan. Yuzuke had been out for the day on his own, and while riding his friend's bicycle back to the village in the evening, he took a spill off the road and landed outside a dilapidated cottage in the middle of the woods. Almost immediately, a light is switched on inside the cottage and Yuzuke sees an older woman emerge onto the porch. Yuzuke, disoriented and bleeding from the fall, approaches the older woman to apologize for crashing into the hedge, of course, and to ask for directions. The woman, Fumiko, more or less ignores Yuzuke's questions and ushers him into the house to clean his cuts. After recovering, Yuzuke notices the handlebars and wheels of his bicycle were damaged in the crash, and that he is probably stuck where he is. Being stuck, he takes a closer look at his surroundings. The cottage is even more run down than he first realized, and the woods around it are shabby. Everything about the scene, even the woman herself, says relic.
0: There was something about this place. It seemed to belong to a different time, a different realm. Perhaps because he had wandered all day long past rural scenes that were redolent of an older world, the house reminded him of a folk tale he'd read as a child. A traveller seeking shelter at the end of a long day's journey sees a faint light in a distant field and walks toward it, until at last he reaches a hut where a woman reluctantly lets him stay the night. In the morning, though, he finds only a pile of bleached bones on the floor and hears the wind howling through the bamboo latticework of crumbled walls. This weathered mountain cottage also seemed haunted as though some unseen presence were warding off the outside world.
1: That unseen presence? That would be Taro Azuma, who lurks in the margins of the scene, causing ripples in the tense air. Yuzuke tries to solve the strange dynamic between Fumiko and Taro, whose relationship he cannot fathom. She's not his mother, she's not his wife. And yet, there is some kind of sexual relationship between this middle-aged man and older woman, and, obviously, some kind of past. Yuzuke learns that it's Taro's house, but Fumiko quite obviously tends it for him. At the same time, she can be openly dismissive of Taro, specifically his moodiness, even when he is within earshot. She also keeps Yuzuke in the house, even though it manifestly irritates Taro that this unwelcome guest is in his midst. After it's established that Yuzuke will not be able to get back to the village that night, he's placed in an outbuilding, a kind of shed next to the cottage, to sleep. This steams Taro further, but, in the strange order of things, he submits to Fumiko's authority. The scene would seem to end with Fumiko burning what she calls a welcoming fire, a small pile of twigs that is traditionally set alight during the summer to help guide returning spirits. Fumiko, Yuzuke, and the reluctant Taro then make a toast to the dead. So, all in a day's work, right? Fall off your bike, get taken into a tumble-down cottage, meet two people whose relationship to one another you cannot discern. Sure. Yuzuke heads to the shed to put it all behind him, falling asleep with sufficient ease. But, just a few hours later, he's woken up. In the doorway to the shed stands a girl with frizzy hair, staring at him. As soon as Yuzuke sees her, though, she runs off. Yuzuke scrambles out of bed, but loses sight of her in the forest. On the way back, he runs into Taro, who is standing on the porch.
0: He must have remained awake in the dining area, as he was still wearing the same white shirt and black trousers. Perhaps he'd been up drinking the whole time. Yusuke told him he'd had a strange dream. This always happened with him when he was wrought up. With the porch light off, the moon, now lower in the sky, tinged the man's face with a bluish glow. It felt as if someone came into the shed and then left, Yusuke explained. Was it a woman? No, it was a girl, wearing a yukata. A yukata? Yes. Maybe it's because I saw the lady taking apart that kimono this evening? The man's eyes were wild-looking now the one with the red koi? Yes, that one. His face was almost contorted. The next instant he leaped down from the porch and, bolting through the gate, made a sharp right turn and disappeared. Startled, Yusuke hurried after him, pausing when he reached the gate. Looking up the road, he saw the back of his white shirt as he ran up the hill like a man possessed. Yusuke stood at the gate and waited. Finally, when he couldn't bear the mosquitoes any longer, he went back to the shed, sat on the bunk, and watched from the high window. He kept up his vigil patiently, but the man did not return. It was as if he had been swallowed up in the mountain darkness. Yellow light continued to shine from the front room. In the commotion, a moth had made its way inside and was flying around and around against the ceiling, its wings fluttering wildly.
1: So there's more than one presence haunting this strange place. Yuzuke leaves the cottage in the woods the next morning to go back to the friend with whom he's staying, and back to what Yuzuke calls the real time of the world outside, the strange woods of Taro and Fumiko, and welcoming fires and crazy haired ghosts. And all that space oddity would seem to be in the past, except Yuzuke cannot stay away for long. He's enchanted, there's no other way to put it. And on the pretext of having to fetch his friend's broken bicycle, which the friend expressly tells him to forget about, Yuzuke returns to the cottage in the woods, which begins a series of meetings with Fumiko, which then turns into Yuzuke following Fumiko as she travels around the area, all of which leads him to learn more about the strange story of Taro Azuma's life. From the cottage, Yuzuke goes to the older, more august section of Karo Izawa, and meets three sisters, or as Fumiko puts it, three witches, who, like Fumiko and Taro, seem to live in a different time.
0: Yuzuke watched as laughter rippled among the three old ladies. Their air of fragile translucency came from their dress, their delicate fingers, and no doubt their age. Though shy, nervous, and dazed, he was still able to recognize that these women were indeed sisters. They all had the same extremely fair skin, all had large eyes with double-fold eyelids, fine sculpted noses, and delicate yet firm lips. All wore makeup, a light layer of face powder, and carefully applied lipstick and had such a pronounced air of self-confidence that it would have intimidated most Japanese men. Never before had Yusuke met anyone of this kind, much less at so close a distance, and certainly not three at once. He found himself more flustered than he would have been around women of his own age.
1: And just as Yusuke entangles himself in the affairs of the cottage, he gets wrapped up in the affairs of the three sisters, who invite him back to their grand house. At first he's reluctant, but when Fumiko says that she'll be there, he does return. As the novel moves locations from The Cottage in the Woods to the house in Karo Izawa, the role of the narrator is taken up by a new character. Remember we started with Mizumura, then we went to Yuzuke, and now it's Fumiko who tells the story. Where Yuzuke had given the reader the sense of a dissolute Taro in the present, Fumiko gives us the sense of how Taro was in the past, and how he came to be connected with the three witches, as well as the crazy-haired spirit who came to visit in the cottage the other night. In short, in very short, seeing as I'm compressing about 200 pages, Fumiko was a housekeeper to one of the three sisters. In the house where Fumiko had worked, there was husband, wife, two daughters, and a grandmother. But there was another house on the property, which was rented out for extra income to the family servant, Roku. Into this house one day came a motley crew of Roku's relatives, not the name of a band. These relatives were Japanese people who were said to have lived in Manchuria until well past the end of the war, awaiting repatriation in Japan. Since arriving, though, they had not been able to find their footing.
0: More than a decade had passed since the war ended. The post-war period is behind us, was the year's slogan, and indeed the raw and painful memories of the old days immediately after the war had mostly faded. But on that day... On Roku's doorstep, they all came back like returning ghosts. Roku's nephew and his wife were each carrying large bundles in both hands and had filthy loads wrapped in ropes that crisscrossed their chests and shoulders. Roku had told us that the nephew was in his thirties, but to me he looked over fifty. They had three boys with them, all of whom had the same grimy cloth and rope things weighing down their shoulders. The older two appeared to be of middle school age, while the youngest was still quite small. All three of them had reddish-brown hair. A clear sign of malnourishment. The youngest stood apart from the rest, as though to show he wasn't one of them. They were all hollow-eyed from hunger, but his eyes had a hollowness beyond hunger, a blankness, like a pair of glass beads. That little one was Taro.
1: Taro is a runt, and is treated as such by his own family. The reason soon becomes clear. He's not one of their own. He's a half-breed, the child of a relative who is said to have been impregnated by a Chinese bandit. And on top of that, he's an orphan. So while his own, admittedly not immediate family, treat Taro brutally, there are two people in the main house who take to him quite quickly, the grandmother and the younger of the two daughters, Yoko. Yoko and Taro are the same age. Like Taro, Yoko is a younger sibling, and like Taro too, Yoko is ill-favored by her parents, in particular her mother, who makes her preference for the elder daughter plain to all. What happens is that Taro is adopted on the sly by the grandmother. She arranges that he goes to school, where he quickly rises to the top of the class. The girl's parents tolerate Taro's presence in their house, assuming it's their daughter helping him acclimate to school when it's the other way around. And during the summer, when the family go to Karo Izawa, they bring Taro along, although they treat him like a houseboy and make him sleep in the shed of a cottage in the woods, the place where Yuzuke will later spend the night. Despite these degradations, Taro's devotion to Yoko is steadfast and because her family doesn't pay much attention to her, she is free to be with Taro as much as she pleases. A profound but asymmetrical love is built on this mutual devotion. Fumiko, watching it all from afar, predicts disaster. A love that would cause Taro to, in her words, wander ever after between bliss and pain. At this point, I've offered more plot than usual, but in a novel that's over 800 pages long, we're barely scratching the surface. At the same time, because you've heard the synopsis of Wuthering Heights, you'll have some sense of what's coming down the chute for Taro and Yoko. Much was made of the fact that this book was based on Wuthering Heights, and a seemingly equal amount was said about how this novel updates, changes, or postmodernizes the original story. To this I'd say, not really. Postmodern can of course mean many things. It can mean aftermodern, a rejection of the modern, a continuation of the modern, insofar as the word modern remains part of the term. Or it can mean being outside the time of modernity. This novel is more like Wide Sargasso Sea to Jane Eyre, by which I mean it doesn't change the story so much as it looks at it from another point of view. Of course, you can argue that the introduction of a new perspective does change any story, but I would counter by saying, not much, not significantly. I'd also say that adding a new perspective is not itself a postmodern move. You can find it in Joseph Conrad's brilliant novel, The Secret Agent, where the central story is told, retold, and expanded upon by various different characters. That novel was published in 1907. I would say that while there is a more expansive plot in a true novel than in its template Wuthering Heights*. And while there is a torch relay of narrators, Mine to Yuzuke to Fumiko to, eventually, Fuyue, one of the three sisters, and while there are allusions to other novels within a true novel, most obviously allusions to The Great Gatsby, what a true novel demonstrates is how little the underlying story, first published in 1847, has changed. Transposing the story of class and, to a lesser but still important extent, race, from mid-19th century England to mid-20th century Japan, connects, rather than distances, Wuthering Heights and a true novel. When I read this book, I didn't see differences. I saw similarities, even universalities. But if I'm going to say that a true novel is little more than a geographic transposition of the original Wuthering Heights, I don't mean to undercut many of the impressive things about this book. For starters, Mizumura's novel is hardly a slight undertaking. It's a gazillion pages long, 854 to be precise, and I was not ever bored while reading it, not once. It's brilliantly plotted and paced. But if it does flirt with greater ideas, the ones suggested in the prologue, specifically the matter of the line between fact and fiction, what makes for authenticity, then flirting is all this novel does. Expressing an idea is not the same thing as exploring or developing it. If meta is what you're after, this is not the book for you. If what you want is a good story well told, a 19th century novel in the 21st, then here you go. Listeners of the podcast know it's been a while since I read fiction that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading a true novel. Thank you for listening. Next up will be a review of The Devil, a short, in relative terms, story by Tolstoy, who has single-handedly ended my many years of self-imposed exile from Russian literature. In the meantime, some of you will have noticed that Burning Books recently joined the Litopia network of podcasts, where we're going to be better able to carry on a conversation about books under review and books in general. The address is litopia.com, spelled like it sounds. From there, you can follow the links to Burning Books, where you can find a button to email the show. There's also, of course, Twitter, where I look forward to your comments, nasty and nice, at burningbookspod. My thanks to Hakon Osgon for the music. To Peter Cox, the executive producer of the show.
0: Herb. I thought you said it herb. No, no, I thought you said it herb. No, no, oh, that's right. weird.
1: And as always, go Jays.
0: Burning Books is brought to you by Litopia. Executive producer Peter Cox. Explore all our shows at latopia.com.